What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of My Unapologetic Perspective here on the Mighty Motivation Network, where we give our point of view on controversial topics from experience, history, and knowledge as African Americans. Um, I'm joined by my co-host today, uh, Jerome Battle, again, with the New York Yankee on today that he's sporting. What up? Uh, and Shaquan Battle is in front of the camera today, joining us. Nothing to say? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sporting the Atlanta Braves hat. Um, Don't know why. But. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a Dodgers fan for the people. I just like the color right now. Um, yeah. So we're going to jump right into... Um, this episode, uh, again, another great episode last week with so many comments and so many um, messages and so much talk from uh, the people that listen to this podcast. Um, incredible episode. And probably the most feedback I got from that episode is a, um, a clip that I put up yesterday uh, talking about the younger generation um, really stepping up and the older generation really you know, allowing the younger, younger generation to step up. And I believe that the younger generation um, received that very well I, as I got a few messages and a few um, thank yous from, from the younger generation on, on talking about that. Um, today, we're going to be talking about an important topic, especially in the African-American community, is we're going to talk about the importance of sports in the African-American community on uh, the direction that it took and why it's important, why we look up to our athletes um, who are resilient and, and actually speak out about the things that's going on there more than athletes. Um, we want to talk about that today. And I'm going to allow these two to hold me accountable today because I don't want to rush this episode. That's right. um, I know we have a time limit um, on what we try to get this episode done. But if it goes over, it goes over because there's a lot to cover within this episode. And I really want to take my time and not rob the audience of what we have to say towards this topic. Absolutely. I don't want to interject for 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 black males. Um, we, we tend to always look outside of the household for some reason mm -hmm. when we look at role models. But we're not just talking about role models and heroes, because as you, as I told you guys on a few few podcasts, my first hero and still my hero is my dad. Mm -hmm. uh, my first role model was my oldest brother, Alvin. You know, but we we tend to look at sports, uh, people in sports as inspiration. Right. Um, we also look at them as influencers mm -hmm. where they influence a lot of who we are today mm -hmm. because we look at their resilience, things that they went through. Um, the fact that when in this case, what we're going to talk about is breaking the color barrier they couldn't just be black players. Mm -hmm. They had to be really good black players. Yeah. They had to be better than the white counterpart in yeah. order to be able to break the barrier. Right. A lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that, I think we incorporate in our development of our principles and who we who we are as black men today. Absolutely. And I'll direct this question to Shaquan is, why do you think sports is so important in the African-American community? Uh, I would say because... I mean, a lot of times you're, you're looking for a, a lot of households, you're looking for that male figure mm -hmm. um, as a as a father or as a brother. So I think when you watch sports, you're looking at you can relate. Mm -hmm. I'll say that you can relate. Um, you know, I remember the first time I picked up a basketball 
and then I went in the house and watched Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. It was I could relate. Mm-hmm. So I think it's for us. It's all about uh, relatable things. Rappers, we relate. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's the reason why we connect the sports so much because it's relatable. And uh, again, going back to what we talked about in previous episodes, that when you walk into a classroom, you don't see African Americans on the wall. You don't that's see right. the pictures. You don't see the success. So when you watch. ESPN and you see the Michael Jordans of the world, you see the Magic Johnson of the world be successful and people praise them and African-Americans say, okay, that's what I need to I do. That. That's success that's to right. me. So when you look at that, that's why sports, We when we say relatable, it's because we see success um, in, in music or in sports from our African-Americans. Um, when you look at why it's important is because we always talk about, you know, the skills that you learn in sports, you know, how work ethic, um, how to how to work as a team, all of those great things that you learn to build character um, in sports. And also we have to look at education wise, because one of the main things that comes with being a great athlete is a scholarship now. Absolutely. So a lot of people would not have the opportunity to be what they are today if it wasn't for sports that didn't make it to the NBA or didn't make it professionally. They they had a full ride to be able to be educated That's that right. they wouldn't have got from the impoverished areas or from the lack of funds from their high school that they that they got by going to college and, and playing sports. Um, so when we see that, we understand. And even looking at high school, I know some of my friends probably wouldn't have graduated high school if it wasn't for sports. That's right. So you're talking about them unintentionally being educated to still be able to be successful after sports. Um, That's right. In, indirectly getting that education by means of using sports to keep them engaged. Yes. Absolutely. So we saw early on that that sports kept a lot of people out of the streets. And this is why you see a lot of basketball camps when people say, why are you always doing basketball camps? Why are you always doing sports camps? Because that's one of the main things that can keep kids out of the streets and out of trouble. That's right. I um, remember with, with Hoop Kids, Dad said he started Hoop Kids because from 6 to 7.30, the kids wasn't in the street. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just that hour and 30 minutes, you give them something to do. Absolutely. You give them something to look forward to as well. Something constructive to do right. because they will find something to do. It just, right. may, it just may not be constructive. Okay. So... Uh, I'm of course, you know, I'm gonna take you through a chronology history of sports here in America. Um, the first sport to be called a sport here in America is actually lacrosse. That's Native right. Americans were already playing lacrosse um, before the colonizers come over to America. So lacrosse is counted to be the first sport in America. But Europeans come over with their own sports. Um, a lot of people are not going to like this because Michael Vick, but one of the main sports was fighting, cockfighting, dogfighting. Dog fighting. Any type of Any animal fight. fighting that they can come up with, they 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 fought them and, and they would gamble and do those things. So that was one of the first initial sports was cockfighting. And in cockfighting, it helped a lot of African Americans because they trained the, the bird, they they healed the bird, right. they they fought the bird in, in the fights, and because they were always with their relationship, you watch Roots again, Chicken George. Um, and a lot of them gain their freedom from their winnings from winning these cockfights and respect and, and respect. So we, we saw the importance of sports early on for African-Americans or enslaved Africans um, in America from from cockfighting. Um, and then uh, another sport that came to prominence where African-Americans really dominated was racing horses, horse derby. That's right. And derby. and because, again, who, who trains the horse? Who spends time with the horse? It was the, the enslaved African that did so. So who would make the better jockey was the person who was always with the horse all the time. Right. And if you look at history, um, the first 
like race called the road, uh, the race of the roses or something like that. Um, there were 13 out of the 14 jockeys were African-Americans. Um, if you look at the Kentucky Derby out of the first 22 Kentucky Derbies, African-Americans won 11 of them. That's right. Um, so you, you're talking about success early on in one of the um, greatest jockeys they called his name was Abe Hawkins. He was a, a African-American who they considered the best jockey on the continent. And then after him came a success story by a guy by the name of Isaac Murphy. Now, Isaac Murphy won three Kentucky Derbies. That's right. And it actually got to the point where he had accumulated $10,000 in one year from racing horses. And that put the end to it because white people start to see that this guy's become a successful yeah, author of money. sports. So they banned African-Americans from being uh, jockeys. And I actually just read a story where there's a black jockey who's trying to be the first person to win the Kentucky Derby since then. So we see that we still see um, the problems with that today. Um, the second sport that comes up after horse derby was was bicycling. Um, a guy by the name of Major Taylor was considered one of the best um, bicyclists in the world to the point where his white opponents would team up to just stop him from winning. They didn't care who else won, long as he don't win. So they would beat him up while they're riding, you know, kick his bike. Hit him in the thigh, hit him in the eye, throw do whatever the they could. Yeah, the throw the sticks into the spokes, whatever they could to stop him from winning. And he actually became the second African in America to win a world championship. Uh, I think the first one was like a Canadian boxer. But um, of course, after he won all of those times, Major Taylor was um, they banned uh, blacks from competing <laughs> in that sport in America. And then we had the rise of boxing. Okay, and out of the rise of boxing, they had what they called the Battle Royal. If you understand what the Battle Royal or the Battle Royale was, they would blindfold um, kids, African-American kids from the ages of seven to 18. If, if you if you go back and watch the movie Ray. Ray, yes. Go back and watch the movie Ray and you'll see that enacted in, in that movie. Right. So they would blindfold them and it would be like five or six of them and you fought until the last person was standing. That's right. Um, and this was entertainment. But a person that rose from prominence from the Battle Royale was a guy by the name of Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson. We and we talked about him last week. And Jack Johnson became, you know, the heavyweight champion. Um, at first, he beat all of the black boxers and then he he um, harassed the white boxers to box them so he could be the, the, the heavyweight champion of the world. Right. And when he came across the white boxer, the white boxer that was the heavyweight champion retired. He said, I don't want to fight no more. I'm retiring. He went back to his farm. So they created what they called the Great White Hype. If you ever seen that movie with uh, Samuel Jackson, right. I think it was the Great White Hype. Um, that was based off of, of Jack Johnson. And they, they created a white boxer to try to beat Jack Johnson. And Jack Johnson destroyed him and brought the other uh, retired white champion out of retirement. And with Jack Johnson beat the brakes off of him, too. And after he beat the brakes off of him, there was actually a riot where white people was going into black neighborhoods just randomly killing the black people because they had to preserve some type of dignity because now the greatest fighter in the world happened to be black and he just beat That's up right. a white person. So and even before Jack Johnson, there there were some some slaves. There's some writings from some slaves that said, although they were contemplating escaping, one of the reasons that they didn't is because of the fights. Mm -hmm. They wanted to stay and watch the fights because the slave masters got so much enjoyment mm -hmm. out of watching two blacks fight mm -hmm. that they were better to them. They mm -hmm. treated them a little bit better because of those fights. So that entertainment 
ease some of the pressure of the slaves from the slave masters during that time. Right. And if you go back and watch the movie Mandingo or the Django and Django, they, they showed that where they were, where the slaves were, will be put up against each other to fight for That's entertainment. Right. So uh true story. Well, about that. Um, and then we go to the most popular, to the most popular sport, which is baseball. And by the guy by the name of Moses Walker, 1889, Fleetwood, the Fleetwood was the first uh, African-American to be um, in professional uh, baseball. And then in the same year, his brother joined the team That's right. until some white um, opponents complained about they didn't want to play against black players. So eventually they were banned from baseball until um, later on, as we know. But what developed after their ban, which was the, the Negro Leagues. Now, the Negro Leagues was so was so great because it came up out of the, the Great Depression, for one, where people were just looking for a reason to be happy about something. That's right. And once again, sports gave people hope. Great yes, Absolutely. yes. And it, it not only gave people hope, it gave what we call African-American community heroes. That's right. So, you know, th there would be not just men love sports, women love sports. And they say that the Negro Leagues was playing on Sunday. They they stopped church. That's we're right. going to the game. We're going to watch. We're going to watch Sancho Page and them. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So the Negro Leagues only not only had black owners, they had black managers, they had black players. They had black audience and they had black writers. That's right. So that's one of the things that came up through there. And they would talk about how they would play four games in one day. They would play in Philadelphia in the morning and they would travel. All, yeah. And they would travel all the way down to Virginia for their fourth game. And then they would turn around and do it the very next right. day. So we, we see how much of a business it was um, for the Negro leads. And they would play. You got the Yankee um, thing on. They would play the Yankees in a two game series. That's right. And they would win sometimes. So they understood that they could play with the white players, and the white players understood, that, hey, they can play with us. Once There's some players in this league that can play with us. The problem they had is when they would play a major league team like the Yankees, some of the white players wouldn't play. Right. Um, some white players refused to play against or with black players. Mm -hmm. um, even when Jackie Robinson broke the barrier in 1947, mm -hmm. um, there was players on the team that said, I refuse to play. And when they played opposing teams, some of those teams had players that would refuse to play. Right. And it can't, It got to the point where when they would do the Negro League All-Star game, it would be over 50,000 people right. um, at Yankee Stadium. That's right. And even black people, even white people came out to watch these games because it was so entertaining to watch these players play. That's right. They said the first year it was 19,000. The mm -hmm. second year it was 43,000. 43,000. 57,000. 57,000. I want you to put this in real perspective. So when you talk about having... Black Americans play in Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. Do you really think it was about breaking the barrier or breaking the bank? Breaking the bank. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. If you got 43 people, 43,000 people, people showing up, showing up for a yeah. Major League Baseball game, it's about the money. You right. can trust me, it's about the money. So for the people who love the Stephen A. Smiths, the uh, Michael Wilborns, all of those great writers, which we'll get into a little bit later, is... This rose those type of writers, um, the ones that laid the foundation. People like Frank Faye Young was one of the first um, black writers on a um, on a white newspaper or night uh, or journalist where he covered the Negro League specifically, and he allowed he wrote about these players to bring them up to prominence, so people could know about your Sancho Pages and Jackie Robinsons and all of those great players. Um, Ira Lewis, uh, Sam Lacey, Wendell Smith. Um, Sherman Maxwell all played 
particular uh, important roles and not only covering the Negro leagues, but breaking the barrier to allow these players to play in the major league baseball. Absolutely. Um, so when we look at them, uh, the writers were just as important as the players um, to get that information out there about what was going on. Simultaneously, what is happening in baseball in football, there's a guy by the name of Fitz Pollard. Now, Fitz Pollard is a is a running back and a linebacker because back then you played both ways. Right. And he would talk about how when he got tackled, that white players would stomp on his on his hand. So that's what he had to deal with. But the NFL was kind of revolutionary um, more than baseball because it was like three black players to each team by then. That's right. So that they were they were really uh, breaking the barrier. But Fitz Pollard was the first uh, African American to play in a Rose Bowl. Um, he be also be Bobby Marshall, Bobby, Bobby Marshall. Marshall, and um and um I forgot what his name is, but his name is like Frederick Douglass, and they called him uh Frederick, Frederick Douglass Pollard. That's yeah, right. so that's Fritz Pollard. That's his name. His name was real name was Frederick Douglass Pollard. Um, he also became the first African American quarterback and the first head coach in professional football. So we see that uh, the barriers that um that were were being broke. Now, one of the least popular sports was basketball. And in basketball, uh, it was a team called the Renaissance Big Five, the Big Renaissance Five. And they actually played in a in a ballroom to where they would play a game in a ballroom and have a dance right after. That's how boring, that's how uh, least intriguing basketball was to people. That's right. Um, but they would actually play against a team called the Original Celtics, which was an all-white team. And they actually created a friendship because they had mutual respect for each other because they played each other so much. But the the um, Renaissance Five went on like an 80-some game win streak. Mm -hmm. They became like one of the first uh, professional basketball teams to win a championship. Um, and they but opened it, up a it, lot of doors. It, it didn't count. It only count as the Negro championship. The Negro championship. Right. And all they actually had to stop playing and actually go get real jobs yeah. because there was no money coming in from playing basketball. That's right. And basketball didn't become popular until the Harlem Globetrotters, which they came in with the entertainment part of what we still like to see today, the crossovers, the dunks, all that's of those right. things. So that, that's what made yeah. Globetrotters uh, basketball really uh, come into play. Um, in track and field, a guy by the name of Jesse Owens. Jesse. And in high school, Jesse Owens was 15 years old and his soon-to-be wife was 13 when they had their first child. Man. So when he was at Ohio State breaking records, fighting uh, discrimination, he was also working to send money back to his family because he had a kid. And it got to the point where he wasn't even going to practice. He was telling the coach, like, look, I got to send money back home. That's right. I can break the records. I ain't got to practice, but... I got, I got I got a family at home, but his breakthrough came um, during the 1936 Olympics in um, in Berlin in front of the one of the most racist people in the world, which was Adolf Hitler. That's right. And uh, Adolf Hitler had had his spiel about the white people being superior. And Jesse Owens went out there and won four gold medals right in front of his face. Not only did he win, if you look at uh, somebody like a, Ra a Ralph McCaff, he was right behind him. So you had two African-Americans. Killing the the competition internationally and right in front of the um, Adolf Hitler's face. And Adolf Hitler, he was congratulating other people on their medals, but refused to meet with African. Yeah, he refused to meet with them. But one of the controversies that came after that was uh, America said that Adolf Hitler refused to to acknowledge yeah. that Jesse Owens won. Jesse disputed that and said, "No, he he waved." He waved at me. Right. He said the only person who did not congratulate FDR me was the president Frederick, of the United States. Yeah, FDR did exactly. not congratulate and him. And that was huge because 
uh, for Jesse, we talked about this with Muhammad Ali, mm -hmm. is that you asked me to go do something for the country when the country won't do anything for me, won't even acknowledge me. Yeah. Uh, so that 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 was kind of what shaped Jesse's whole idea about the United mm -hmm. States. He voted Republican for a lot of years mm -hmm. um, based on the fact that, you know, Americans did not approve of him or, or, or see him as a human being. Absolutely. Uh, and he, he kind of blamed the Democrats for that, for, mm. for a large, for a large, obviously too, because Democrats didn't want him to go. You got to remember that. Yeah. And this is Jesse Owens story is something that I think a lot of people ought to do some research about because they were trying, black Americans were trying to convince Jesse to not, not go. even go. Yeah. But for, for athletes, for people who have an opportunity to do something great in your life, something that you prepare for, something that you love, because it's not going to be a lot of things coming from this environment that you're going to love, mm -hmm. whether it be sports or music or what have you. This was something that Jesse lived his whole life for. Mm -hmm. And he had an opportunity to go showcase it on the biggest format possible. Mm -hmm. So for people that don't know, there was really no professional track and field. Right. This is it for you. Mm -hmm. Once you go to the Olympics, that's it. That's it. That's nothing that's else it. to do after that. So he, and you have a small, when we talk about a window of opportunity of being influential, the window for the Olympics is even smaller. Yeah. You know, unless you start at 14 or 15, like Wilma Rudolph, who we'll we're going to talk about later. Yeah. Later. But, you know, so for Jesse, this was it. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the biggest stage for him. The other important part is, is that he disagreed with something that the track coach did. He pulled uh, the, the, Jewish, the Jewish. He pulled yeah. the Jewish uh, runners from the, the, the relay team. Mm -hmm. The 400. And inserted him. And I believe it's Jackie Robinson's brother. I yes, yes. Jesse, Jackie Jack, Robinson's uh, brother. Jesse, yes, Jesse absolutely. Robinson, yeah, pulled it and included them, and he didn't want to do it. Yeah. And the coach came to him and said, you will do as you're told. Mm -hmm. Once again, imposing that slave master mentality right. onto the black Jesse Owens. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing. We you talked about this last week is once they got back from the Olympics, and they found this out through all history after doing the Olympics, is once you got back to America, that gold medal didn't mean anything. Oh, absolutely. So one of the, one of the key instances that happened to integrate sports was soldiers after World War, after the World War One and World War Two, because they went fighting Hitler for racial discrimination, and they saying you guys are doing the same thing to us whenever we go home. That's right. So one of the things that helped integrate sports was those soldiers who were athletes as well. Because right. when you think about Jackie Robinsons, um, the the Joe Lewis's, all of those, all of those people are drafted. That's so right. so we, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but. Um, a key person, the first white person I'm going to name is um, Branch Rickey. Uh, Branch Rickey was um, a person who really wanted to integrate baseball. But in 1910, when he coached college baseball, he threatened to pull his whole team from a hotel if they didn't allow a one black player to stay there. And the, the, they allowed the black player to stay in his room in a cot. And he said, I watched him cry all night. That's right. And then... When he was a manager in St. Louis, he actually tried to integrate the the seating in the stadium because he said, you know, black people should be able to sit wherever they want to. That's right. He was unsuccessful in doing so, but, but he, he but he tried. And then years later, of course, he was the one who had the idea that to bring Jackie Robinson up to um, the Major League Baseball um, by putting them through the, the farm, the farm teams and bringing them up. Um, but Jackie Robinson was, you know, he lettered in four different sports at UCLA. That's right. Um, I believe it was track, 
baseball, basketball, and football, if, I, if I'm thinking correctly. Um, but he ended up having to leave UCLA because of money issues. He wasn't on scholarship. That's right. So you letter in four different sports, but you, you're not on scholarship. Um, and to where he was drafted and he became a morale officer to where he was fighting a lot of racial discrimination as the morale That's officer right. um, in the war. Um, and then he, after his honorable discharge, well, we'll get to why he got honorable discharge a little bit later. Um, but he started playing baseball and then playing in the Negro Leagues. But one of the one of the things that he had to do, he had to sign a contract that said before he was to go into this farm circuit and try to work his way up to the Dodgers, he could not fight back. He just had to play ball. That's couldn't right. say anything. Just couldn't respond play. to anything. Just play because um, Brent said if you if you do this and if you fight back, it's going to be a problem with integrated because there was a problem. That I think it happened at Syracuse where two basketball or two football players before years before got into a fight with two white players. And they said, if you do that, it's going to hurt your chances of integrating baseball. That's right. So, um, and the last one is the last thing to integrate was the country clubs, <laughs> the golf and the golf and tennis. Those were the, as we still see today, there's some country clubs where you don't see black people there. So that was the last hardest thing to integrate in, uh, Alethea Gibson, tennis player who Althea, fought hard. Althea, Althea, Althea I'm Gibson. sorry. Althea, Althea Gibson, Althea tennis Gibson. player who uh, broke hard um, to break the break into the country clubs and um, began to play with against white players. Uh, she became the first black tennis player to compete at the U.S. National Championship. Uh, six years later, Gibson became the first black athlete to win a tennis Grand Slam tournament, capturing the 1956 French Open. Uh, Gibson won five single Grand Slam tournaments, um, and there is our history of sports. If anyone want to add anything, Athea Gibson is is huge because what you just said about when um, with USC and not having a scholarship, yeah, is huge because this is where for Black Americans that want to go to a HBCU, you're gonna find out right now why they became so important and why you hear us talk about those a lot today. Because they gave scholarships to a lot of these black yes, players. Yes, absolutely. You think about Althea Gibson, mm -hmm. um, Wilma Rudolph. Doug um, Williams. Yeah, Doug Williams. Uh, Arthur Ashe. A, a lot of those Steelers players from that 70s Super Bowl team came That's from right. HBCUs as well. So these these players, these people. Now, go back to Althea Gibson. Even if you go, you look at Wilma Rudolph. Let's look at her in general. At Tennessee State. Mm -hmm. they, they're on on that team for Tennessee State, they had eight of those players go to the Olympics. Yeah, you know, so HBCUs became huge, just not for financing, giving you that that money to go to school, but the training that you needed to be able to go and be the best athlete you possibly can. And it was important for Black women because they got an opportunity to be athletes at these HBCUs. Um, we're gonna take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back again. Go to Mighty Motivation Network on YouTube and subscribe to our channel to follow up the last um, on the last uh, episodes. Um, so we're going to move along after going through a chronology of history. Um, of course, we left a lot out, but there's so much. There's so much. Um, so let's start with important athletes in their sport and why. Um, I'm start with you. W w give me an athlete who was important in their sport. I'm going to go Alice Coachman first. Okay. She was the first black woman to earn an Olympic gold medal. She won in a high jump. 
And uh, the funny thing is, is that her highest jump prior to getting to the Olympics was higher than anybody else had ever jumped before. Mm -hmm. And then she got to the Olympics and a lady was able to match that. And she stepped it up a notch Mm -hmm. during the Olympics, which, again, let's go back to what I said at the beginning. When you're breaking these barriers, the athlete almost has to be better Mm -hmm. than anybody else on the circuit. Mm -hmm. They can't just be black and be a part of it because then it justifies why they don't want you to be there. Mm -hmm. So you have to excel. And this Alice Coachman was able to excel in the Olympics at the spot on the drop of a dime mm-hmm. and won a gold medal the first one in 1948 absolutely that's that's dope you what you got Quan? uh i'm gonna go left field i'm gonna say magic johnson hmm. for the strength of showtime he might have saved millions of lives now getting hiv is not a great thing mm-hmm. but i think the best person in that situation got it mm-hmm. for you know, the research um, for li- being able to live with it, play basketball with it. Um, like you said, if if Magic Johnson wasn't Magic Johnson, then once he got it, he would have been out of the NBA. That's right. Um, so I believe Magic Johnson has done a phenomenal job of saving millions of lives by showing people how you can live with it. And still excelling in, right. in sports right. by right. doing so. Also, he, he did something that was phenomenal in college. For those that may not know, when he played Larry Bird oh, yeah. in college, where there had not been a black player at the college level to outdo the mm-hmm. mighty Larry Bird. Mm-hmm. And he did so on the big stage. So he had already had already faced adversity from day mm-hmm. one yeah. um, in college. So he was trained to be able to deal with HIV in the way that he did by the adversity that he had been through in life already. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to go with an obvious pick, but it's for a different reason, which is uh, Muhammad Ali. And the reason why I'm picking Muhammad Ali is why he was important is because he showed how to create longevity in a sport. So for the people who glorify LeBron James and his longevity, um, Tom Brady and his longevity, um, we have to look at Muhammad Ali for what he was able to do and make adjustments throughout his career. So if you look at 1964, which most people know about when he beat Sonny Liston and went on a roll from there. Um, that was 1964 when he beat Sonny Liston. In 1966, he's stripped of his titles due to his um, not enlisting in the Vietnam War. 1970, he's banned for three and a half years from boxing. So from 1966 to 1970, he's not labeled to box anywhere. In 1971, he loses to new champion Joe Frazier. And people thought his career was over after Mm -hmm. that. But he comes back and he wins some in-between fights. And then he loses to Ken Norton. And most people really thought it it was over for Muhammad Ali. But in 1974, he comes back and he beats Frazier in a rematch. In 1974, which was supposed to be his grand finality against George Foreman, the big, powerful puncher, he beats George Foreman. And he has the rope-a-dope, and he reinvents himself to win the heavyweight title three different eras. That's right. And there's not many people who can say that they've been heavyweight champion in three different eras. So you go from Sonny Liston to you becoming the champion, 
to beating George Foreman and then you beat Leon Spinks to become the champion. We can take out the Spinks. <laughs> Exclude the Spinks. But, but heavyweight champion in three different eras because you're able to make adjustments to prolong your career. That's right. Amazing. And especially Amazing. When, when a lot of people, and I'm one of them, don't feel like he beat really beat Joe Frazier. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Muhammad Ali never really admitted that he beat Joe Frazier. Mm-hmm. But you're right. He re- he reinvented himself. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he won a lot of those fights, not what he did in the ring, but what he did outside of the ring. Right. He promoted himself. Yes. He was the first Muhammad Ali promoter. Mm-hmm. He promoted himself. Mm-hmm. And he did it well. Uh, Donna Shore, who was a, a well-known act- actress at the time, she deemed him the sexiest man in America. And I don't think she ever made another movie after that. <laughs> <laughs> but also with Muhammad Ali, you, you talked about it, is the way he played the media. That's right. So when you talk about when you talk about people who can sell a fight or sell a show, he's the reason why sports is so universal today. That's right. Because he used the media to create his own agenda. Now, whether you hate him or love him, he didn't care because he said, you're still going to buy tickets. You're still gonna buy tickets. If you're going to want to see me win, or you going to want to see me lose? Hey, absolutely. Was he the first to do the, the braggadocious, like, no, um, you see Floyd? He actually got his, he actually got, I'm going to talk about it a little bit later, he got that from Sugar Ray. That's right. Sugar Ray Sugar was Ray one Leonard. of the first one. Uh, Sugar Ray Leonard. Sugar, oh, Sugar, Robinson. Ray Robinson. Sugar Ray Robinson was, was one of the, the first, first one to, to talk trash that way. It's just Muhammad Ali had a unique way of doing it. And it really got better as he started to uh, tell America when he was going to knock the person yeah. out. When he started to say it's going to go seven, you know, mm-hmm. or he won't last till he won't last six. And the way he went about it, and then went out and did it, it was phenomenal. And yeah. you know, a lot of people would say that Howard Cosell made Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, Ali made, made Howard, Howard Cosell. Cosell. Without without uh, Muhammad Ali, you would have never saw. Uh, Howard Cosell on Monday Night Football. <laughs> uh, I'll pass it back to you, Pops. Give me somebody else. I, I got to go Ernie, uh, Ernest Davis. Ooh. Ernie Davis. For the, that's the Express, the movie, the, the story Express. Oh, you stole by. Uh, and you can have it. Go, 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 go. Because I'm, I'm going to add on to it. You go, can have it. Go, go. For, for me, I, I think the biggest thing is, is that once again, for anybody who's been the only black in a situation. And I can only, I, I know there's some situations where um, some people were the only whites, mm-hmm. but I, I can't speak to that. Okay. But I can speak to situations of being the only black mm-hmm. and having that pressure of having to perform. Like I said, you can't just be good. You got to be, be better than anybody else. And having Ernie Davis on this football field, just keep in mind on a football field, you're only one part. To make it happen. Mm-hmm. So you got all these other entities that have to do something in order for you to be great. And when you're able to go out and be great, even when the people playing with you may not like you, mm-hmm. it's hard in itself. Or if they underperform, it's hard because it affects you. Mm-hmm. He was able to go out and do it mm-hmm. with people who probably didn't like him and against people who definitely didn't like him mm-hmm. with a crowd who obviously wanted to kill him. Mm-hmm. And in certain situations, they probably would have. Mm-hmm. And he went out and performed. There was an instance where they had an opportunity to beat a well-known team. And the coach told Ernie, don't score. Mm-hmm. And he scored. And, and the crowd went crazy. Mm-hmm. So then 
pulled him out and he said, I can't give you the ball. I can't give you the ball because you're going to score. Mm-hmm. And he didn't put him back in the game because he didn't want to give him the ball because the crowd would erupt. Mm-hmm. Made the mistake. And Ernie went back in the game himself at one point. Yeah. And he almost scored. And the crowd went crazy. Mm-hmm. And it took hours for them to be able to get off the field. Yeah. And, you know, so you got this guy who's trying to be great, but the system won't let him yeah. be great. Mm-hmm. And he was able to somehow deal with that. Mm-hmm. Now, his story is a tragic one. Yeah, he died of leukemia. He ended up getting drafted. And again, let's go to racism. He was drafted by, I believe it was the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, Cleveland Browns. Cleveland Browns. Well, no, no. Originally, he was drafted by the Baltimore team, uh, Baltimore Colts. Okay. He was drafted by the Baltimore Colts, but when they found out that he was black, they denounced his rights, and he ended up being traded and ended up with the Cleveland Browns. Mm -hmm. And so racism is what landed him with the Cleveland Browns, Mm -hmm. which was great for him because guess who was there? Jim Brown. Jim Brown, who was his mentor, Mm -hmm. who played at Syracuse Mm -hmm. prior to him, who lured him to Syracuse. Mm -hmm. So it was a blessing in disguise. However, he also found out that he had leukemia. Right. And he ended up not playing a snap of professional football, Mm -hmm. but continued to be a part of that organization. Um, until he died. That I, I had him down too, and I had him down as the big three in Syracuse, which was Jim Brown, who was the first unanimous All-American honors playing college football at Syracuse. Um, he was actually fifth, and I think, in Heisman Trophy voting. But Jim Brown also played um, basketball, track and field, and lacrosse. That's right. So he excelled at all of them. Um, and again, going back, Ernie Davis didn't just play running back. He played defense as well. Right. Back then, you played both ways. Right. Um, and then you had Ernie, Dur- Ernie Davis, the first African-American to win Heisman Trophy. And then they convinced Floyd Little to come after that. And That's Floyd right. Little, um, he would finish fifth in Heisman um, in the year 65 and 66. So we saw Syracuse, three straight running backs, be able to break a barrier that has been that was going on in college football. That's so. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll pass the ball to you. That's crazy how athletic it was back then. Yeah, to play both sides of the ball? Well, a lot of players can, but it's just the fact now that you don't want them to get injured and yeah. you really want them to focus on one thing. But that's just, they was just athletes Yeah. to be able to play um, all of the sports. All right, Kwan, give me somebody else. Uh, Petey from Remember. No, I was playing. <laughs> <laughs> D, run it back, y'all. Um, it's going to hurt me to say it because he played for the Celtics, but uh Bill Russell. Um for him to be that great and then to figure out that Boston fans only love me because of how good I am on the court. Yeah. When I go to buy a house, I can't even buy a house because unless they tell them that hey he plays. That's for that's Bill Russell. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh Bill Russell was great. Um he also um did a lot of uh of work outside the court. He actually became the the first black head coach in the NBA as well. Um I'm a good that, that part Puzzled me. Did he was he coaching while he was playing? Yeah, he did. He, yeah. he was a player okay. coach. He's one of the first part, player coaches. That was the part that that confused me. One of the first player coaches. I'm a good. He won a championship. Absolutely, coaching. Hey, was the first NBA first black NBA coach to win a championship. So he won what 11, 11. player and one as a coach. That's, That's right. crazy. I'm gonna go. He was a player, but he was better coaching. And the reason why I'm going with Tony Dungy is because of what Tony Dungy produced. Right, that's your man. Lovey Smith, Herm Edwards, Mike Tomlin, Jim Caldwell, that's right. and Leslie Frazier 
all coached underneath Tony Dungy in Tampa Bay that and became black NFL head coaches and college coaches all because Tony Dungy seen that African-Americans needed to be pushed in the sport of coaching um, and professionally. We still see the lack today. Right. We still see that they're not given many opportunities. And when they are, they're on a thin line um, with but those like, opportunities. But it's, Tony it's Dungy. The, um, Pollard, the uh, guy we talked about earlier, when he was successful as a coach, then they banned, they banned all blacks. It wasn't another black coach mm -hmm. for another 50 years. Yeah. And Tony Dungy ends up uh, – well, he has the Tampa Bay team, and I think they lose in the Super Bowl, I believe. Or, no, I take that back. They lose in the playoffs, and the next year they win the Super Bowl against the Oakland Raiders. Sorry. But Tony Dun that was Tony Dungy's team, and Tony Dungy goes to the Colts, and he wins a, um, a Super Bowl there. But what he produced, you know, we see what Mike Tom Mike Tomlin is probably the most winningest coach in, in history, especially for African American, he's never, never had a losing season. We know how good Herm Edwards was with the Jets. Um, we know Lovey Smith from being at the Chicago Bears and then I think he's at a college now. He's at a college now. Big, somewhere in the Big Ten, I think. Herm's still coaching. Illinois, I believe it's Illinois. Um, Edwards still coaching there. Herm Edwards, um, you think about what Tony Dungy produced from giving these other black coaches an opportunity. And Herm Edwards could have been a head coach, but, you know, uh, Tony Dungy convinced him to come be the defensive right. coordinator um, here, and then you'll build your, your resume build to be resume. A, amazing. Right. Amazing. That's right. Uh, I'll, I'll throw the ball back to y'all. I'm going to go um, Robert Johnson. And Robert Johnson was a – he was actually a doctor. Um, and actually from Lynchburg, Virginia. That's, mm. that's the reason – one of the reasons why I chose him because he's from Lynchburg. But he's a, he was a uh, a tennis coach who actually taught Athea Gibson and Arthur Ashe. Arthur Ashe. And which are going to be two other ones that I'm going to name <laughs> later on because I love tennis in high school. Uh, me and Junior Bryant uh, learned to play tennis from Boona Patterson. Mm -hmm. You guys hear Boona a lot. Uh, also, uh, Drax. And uh, we, we, we love to play tennis. There was quite a few tennis players in this area. Um, back in the day, mm -hmm. uh, black tennis players. So, you know, my love for the sport led me to do some research and uh, led me to Arthur Ashe and Althea Gibson back in the day. Mm -hmm. And then later on found out that Robert Johnson was a person who coached him. And he was a doctor from Lynchburg. Also, while he was in college, his uh, one of his cl classmates, um, let me get the name straight. One of his classmates was Melvin Tolson. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that rings a bell to you guys. The Great Debaters. The Great Debaters. He was the um he was one of the founders of that starred in the movie The Great Debaters. Oh yeah, okay. Um so Robert Johnson was a doctor, very well educated, understood tennis, and taught African Americans to play tennis mm -hmm. at the at a high level. Because mm -hmm. obviously Athea Gibson and Arthur Ashe were Two of the well-known black tennis players of all time. Uh, tennis was actually one of the, the popular sports for African Americans, especially, um, of course, before the Great Depression, and um, because they created what they called um, black sports clubs, and one of the clubs was um, tennis. That's right. So a lot of black players came from tennis. Um, uh, Shaquan, uh, give me somebody else. Dean Smith. Dean Smith. And I I just found this out this past week that um. He gave UNC's first black scholarship to a player named Charlie Scott. 
Okay. And then after that, he went on to help um, North Carolina become integrated far as the ACC, mm. uh, far as churches. His church was already integrated. Mm -hmm. um, and he invited Scott to the church. Scott said that's why he chose to go to UNC because of the integration that he had already started in North Carolina. Didn't he, isn't he the one that suggested that Patrick Ewan go to Georgetown after visiting North Carolina? Yeah, partly. Okay. He, he suggested it, but he suggested it for a huge reason. When Patrick Ewan, and we know because we're Georgetown fans. Yeah. So Patrick Ewan went to North Carolina to go visit, do the school visit, mm -hmm. and they put him in a hotel. And guess what was happening during that time? The KKK was They were moving. having a KKK rally. Yeah. And Patrick Ewan said, uh-uh. Uh <laughs> and he went to Dean Smith and said, what is going on? He said, hey, that's where life hit. Yeah. And he said, if you, you, if you can't deal with that, then the best place for you to go is the Georgetown mm -hmm. John Thompson, who I'm going to talk about <laughs> in a little while, will take care of you. And which was weird because Patrick Ewan came from Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah. <laughs> who I can tell that's you. One that's, that's one of the racist players. That's one of the racist racist cities in the United yeah. States. So, but so for him to go to Carolina and witness something that scared him to death, that tells you how bad it was. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I'm gonna do one last one. Um, I didn't get to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who. The sky hook. He wore the goggles because people was poking him in the face to stop him from scoring. I didn't get into Tommy Smith and John Carlos who held up their fists after winning the Olympics. And I didn't get into Doug Williams, who was the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl. And he came from HBCU, as we That's talked right. about earlier. Because I have to talk about somebody for me. And I have to talk about when you talk about heart. We could throw Isaiah Thomas out there. I know he was a small player that played with heart. But there was another guy that came out. He was 6'3". And he didn't care about much. His name was Allen Iverson. And what AI did for the, not just the game of basketball, what he did for black culture changed the world. That's right. You're talking about, let's just, someone just start with basketball. You're talking about centers afraid of a 6'3 player coming at him. Now, I know Steph Curry there. Steph Curry scares the world because he can score from 35, 40 feet. But you're talking about players scared of a 6'3 player, 100 and some pounds, because he can put you on a highlight reel. Easy. <laughs> he can make you look stupid. And it, changed, and it changed the game <laughs> of basketball to the point where they made him wear a sleeve to cover up his tattoos. Long, wear that today. long braids, headband. You're talking about white kids coming to school with a hairband on. Long short. This is what Allen Iverson did for the game. And when you talk about, for me personally, when you talk about somebody that plays with heart, uh, shout out to John Langhorn. He always messed with me how I used to come to the park and I would challenge the taller players, the bigger players. Like, And I got that from Iverson because he was fearless and scared of nobody. And when you look at the Damian Lillards of the world, the John Walls of the world, the, the point guards that we see today, you're talking about baby Iversons. That's right. You're talking about guards who are fearless because of Iverson and the way he carried himself. So I got to go with Allen Iverson and the way he revolutionized basketball. And just to piggyback on Allen Iverson real quick, we talked about one of the toughest uh, guards, whether you want to look at because really there's no point guards anymore. In no. The you just have guards and other people because you don't even have centers anymore. Right. So you just have five players. But Dwayne Wade was one of the ones that would get knocked down and right back up. Yeah. 
Before him, there was no other player that got knocked down as many times as Allen Iverson got knocked down. I, I and he would say, get up. Iverson still holds the record for hitting the floor the most times. Absolutely. And he would get up and go hit the free throws. Um, the, the guy was resilient mm -hmm. in, in every term, in every every way of the term resilient. Right. Um, and the fact that he came from Georgetown uh, <laughs> made us feel even better when, every time we watched him play. Yeah. The way he conducted himself. Um, on the court, he had some issues off the court, like a lot of players. He Be was young because he was himself. A pile of money on yeah. in front of a young kid, um, obviously, and he had trouble even before he got to college. Yeah, and that's a whole different story. But that was another instance of where prejudice reared his ugly head, and you had a coach like John Thompson that stepped in and said, "I'll take him." Right, you know, and I'll he, take him. He 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 became the the poster child for white America to say. That's the uncoachable player. Yeah, that's right. That, the uncoachable but player. that's the player that you want on your team because he's relentless. And you don't want to play against him. And, and, if, and, and if once white coaches learn how to coach those players, the NBA changed. Changed. Because we see these players today still, and you see the white coaches, people, even people like Greg Popovich, who learn how to coach them type of players. That's right. That's why I salute Larry Brown. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you want a player – that can play at that level like Allen Iverson. You know what comes with that is the swag. Yeah. So can you deal with the swag? Because it comes together. It's a package deal. Right. right. If you want the points in production and you want that determination, you got to get the swag. Right. Okay. When you look at Duke University, we know Duke University like the Jay Williams, the Chris Duhans, all of them of the world. But now they came to have to get Allen Iversons of the world. That's right. They had to get the Kyrie Irvins. They had to, and Coach K... Uh, Rick Patino, all of them had to adjust their coaching style for them type of players. Absolutely. So Absolutely. Allen Iverson changed the game of basketball from not just the NBA level on down because it still is it's more important to cross somebody over and have them touch the floor than to win the game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, he, Iverson created that. You do not want to touch the floor while guarding somebody. And uh, not only do you not want to touch the floor, but not only could Iverson do that, but then he was going to score the bucket. Yeah. Facts. A whole, uh, and you know, Kobe came out and said that that's one of the hardest players that he ever had to guard. Also, I think he was he was one hundred percent real with 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 America when he did his press conferences. Yeah. yeah. Allen Iverson was real, which is something we heard the politically correct. Michael Jordan politically correct. Magic Johnson would be politically Kobe. correct. Mm -hmm. Kobe would be politically correct. Allen Iverson, you're gonna get the raw, right. uncut version. Mm -hmm. And we've no particular the one I'm talking about where there was some complaints about Allen Iverson not coming to practice. Right. Yeah. And he was like, practice. We talking about practice. Yeah. I come to the game. I show up to the game, play my heart out, knock to the floor more than anybody, play to the whistle blow at the end. Mm -hmm. You talking about practice? Practice. He was real. Nobody had been that real before at a press conference before. Right. And and nobody knew the backstory of why why he wasn't there. Absolutely. The right. they, a lot of people didn't know and probably didn't care. And then when they found out, they was like, oh, man. Yeah. 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 But he said that was that in the him stepping over Tyron Lue was the worst two moments in his NBA career. Yep. And Allen Iverson also was the first NBA player to have a sneaker commercial and they combined it with rap. That's, That's right. First one. That first one. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. And Steve Stout did that. That's right. Absolutely. Anybody else y'all want to name in the sport? In the sport, in or, the sport. Or are we going to get to we're going to get to the coach? We're going to get we we'll get the coach. You got anybody else? Uh, I mean, outside of LeBron, though. Okay, we we we'll get to LeBron. 
Uh, we'll take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Um, and we are back again. Follow the Mighty Motivation Network on YouTube to stay updated on the latest episodes. Um, Pops, I'll let you do your thing. Yeah, I got a couple people I want to name um, prominent first black athletes. And I, the first one I want to name is because um, I have a grandson, Shaquan's son, um, Keaton, plays soccer. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I used to always say is if you if you had a child that wants to play sports and want an opportunity to get a scholarship to college, have him play a sport that he's going to stand out in. The basketball, football, black kids, are, they, they play that. They're going to play that well. They're going to play those skill positions. They're going to get seen. Put him on a soccer field. He's going to be the only black kid out there. And if he's half as good as the white kids, he's going to stand out. Mm -hmm. So the first one is 1889. First black professional soccer player was Arthur Wharton. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I wanted to throw that in there because – we don't we don't see ourselves playing that sport. It's just like you talked about when you first go into school and you don't see any historical black pictures on the wall. Mm -hmm. So we don't have those visions of black soccer players and to give us that idea of what we can be. So I wanted to just put that one out there for um, shout out to my grandson, Keats. Um, also, the first black woman to win a major sporting event was Lucy Diggs Stowe. Um, Howard University um, accomplished what would go on to become a milestone in both African-American and female sports as whole in winning the American Tennis Association's first tournament. She became the first African-American woman to win a major sports title, which is which is huge. Without her, you have no Serena Williams mm -hmm. or Venus Williams. Um, I just want to name a couple more. Uh, let's go first. Black sportscaster, 1929, Sherman Jocko Maxwell. I read a book when Sherman I was about seven years old that talked about Jocko. And the funny story, when I was a kid, we lived right up the street from RFK Stadium. And I wanted to be a sports writer. So what I would do is I would listen to the game, even just sitting outside of RFK Stadium where you could hear. And I would try to get the stats. And then I would try to go home and write a little blog. Of course, it wasn't a blog then because we talk about 1975, <laughs> 1976. But I would write up the events mm -hmm. and I because I wanted to be a sportscaster. I wanted to I wanted to be a news reporter, a sports news reporter. Jocko Maxwell was the one who made me feel that way. Um, I want to mention a couple other people. We're going to mention hockey. We're just going to mention hockey, okay. although we, you, you're not going to have many people in this area to want to play hockey, only because of the weather. And people can dispute it if they want to, but we just don't do well in cold weather. No. Uh, we're not geared for that. No. 1956. Um, well, 1958. First uh, African-American NHL player, Willie O'Ree. Okay, so we want to put that out there. Uh, First black PGA player was Charlie Sifford. Mm -hmm. I think we mentioned that before. Now, let's go first black umpire, because we always talk mm. about the players. Let's talk about umpires. Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947. Mm -hmm. We didn't have our first black umpire until almost 20 years later, wow. 1966. Um, Emmett Ashford, that's the first black umpire. So I, I just... I thought it was important that we mentioned some of these people. Um, the first black, I got to mention this. 
the first black NBA MVP. Y'all ain't gonna like it. 1970. Willis Reed. Mm. New, New York Knicks. Knickerbocker. <laughs> That's right. My New York Knickerbockers win won a championship <laughs> in over 50 years, but it's coming. Y'all laugh. Laugh. Laugh now. There's no John Stocks, okay? You don't have John Stocks messing it up anymore, all right? It's coming. It's coming back to New York. And it's not coming to the Nets, all right, for those who want to be funny. Well, y'all kind of still do got John Stocks, Audrey Bay. <laughs> Boom. First Major League uh, baseball black manager, Frank Robinson, 1970s. Player and manager that Almost year. Almost 30 years after Jackie Robinson. Yeah. Player um, and manager. First black NFL head coach, Art Shell. Guess who he coached? 1989. Just take a wild guess. Since I'm talking, you probably can figure it out. Raiders, come on. Come on, rock with me. The Raiders, baby. They were Los Angeles Raiders at the time, but Raiders are still Raiders no matter where you put them. Las Oakland, Vegas. Las Vegas, Los Angeles, in your backyard, wherever. They're still the Raiders, okay? No, we haven't won. We haven't won no. since we beat the Redskins. Um, but we're coming soon. I don't. I might not see. Keep my Keep my Um First black manager to win a, a World Series, Cito Gaston, and that was in nineteen ninety two. Toronto Blue Jays. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people. That's a that's a little known black history fact because a lot of people one don't even remember Toronto won the World Series and a lot of people don't remember that the manager was black. That's sad and that's only because they're in they're in, in Canada. Canada. Yeah. So, but that's sad because he he was a good manager and that was a really talented baseball team in 1992. <laughs> well, that's what one of the writers said that you know everybody thought when Jackie Robinson had broke that barrier that it was going to start to happen quick. But that's right. That wasn't the case. It, nah. it, it didn't happen. I mean, I, I we were telling the story before before the the podcast. I'm a Yankees fan based on uh, discrimination, but it was done a little differently. The Yankees had a chance to get Willie Mays, and the ownership did not make it a habit of signing young players. It wasn't necessarily because he was black; it was because he was young. But also, the Yankees had a great relationship with the Kansas City Royals, who for many years was touted as being the Yankees' farm system. Mm -hmm. The Yankees made a lot of trades with the Royals over the last 50 years that ultimately led us to be one of the winningest franchises in professional sports. And they did not want the Yankees to take a black player. The, uh, the owner of the Kansas City Royals was a Ku Klux Klan member and argued with George Weiss and said, hey, if you want to continue to have relationships with us, don't sign Willie Mays. Mm -hmm. um, and they didn't until Willie Mays came out and led the league in batting 353 batting average for two years. Mm -hmm. And then the next year, uh, the Yankees signed, um, I think his name was um, Alfred Haywood or something like that. But the Yankees signed him soon after that. So it wasn't about him being black per se. It was about him being young and then pressure. This is the thing I need people to understand about professional sports and even employment. They have to be ready to take on pressure from the consumer. Mm -hmm. And because if you're a business owner and you do something that your consumer does not like, then you have to be willing to lose money. Mm -hmm. So if you hire a black employee and your consumers say, I don't like that, and they're no longer coming to you, you got to be able to be willing to deal with that. So it's not as easy as some people think in just saying, hire this person, 
let's break the barrier. Mm -hmm. You have to worry about whether my business can sustain that. And then all the other employees, how is it going to affect their livelihood? So it's not as easy as some people think just going out and doing it. Mm -hmm. So Betting 353 for two years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Willie Mays was um, was amazing himself. And for those that don't know, he signed with the New York Giants, uh, who ended up moving to San Francisco. And that's you have your San Francisco Giants today. Absolutely. Learn me something. <laughs> We're going to move right into because I don't want to hold them last because they don't deserve to be last, which is our women in sports. I'm going to start with. There were some women playing at USC. Back in the mid '80s, it consisted of <laughs> Paula McGee, Pamela McGee. If you don't know, just Javale McGee's mother. That's right. Cynthia Cooper, and a girl, a woman, by the name of Cheryl Miller. That's right. As Stephen A. Smith was saying, <laughs> Cheryl Miller. Score thirty, shoot from thirty. <laughs> real Reggie Miller. Yeah. <laughs> so, real Reggie Miller. Since when she was scoring hundred points in high school, and it got to the point where. Her parents had to put in another phone in their house just for recruiters to call in because they, they were tying up the line on their regular phone. But she comes into USC and Louisiana Tech at the time was the team to beat. And they wore T-shirts because the coach didn't want it to feminize her women. So they wore T-shirts, but they were inside game. Throw the ball into the big man. Let's play. And these four black sisters. <laughs> was running people off the court. And, you know, Cheryl Miller became the best basketball player in the world from what she did in that championship game. Her and Cynthia Cooper. That's right. But what happened was after they, when they were at USC, number one, they, they said that they were treated differently because black studious students said that they were only there for sports. And That's right. they looked at them differently. And white students looked at them different because you look at somebody like Cynthia Cooper, she was from Watts. Right. You know, she's from the she That's from right. the straight hood, you know, and they were looked at differently. But what happened after they won, you know, back to back championships, they win the the Olympic gold medal. The only thing they could do was go across seas. That's right. So Cynthia Cooper goes across seas and plays for 10 years. Paula and Pamela McGee joins the Harlem Globetrotters and then go across seas. But Cheryl Miller really didn't have anything. And she played pickup basketball game with the football players and she tore her Achilles. Now, if you think about today, you tear your Achilles, you back next you year. That's right. But back then they it's didn't done. have they didn't have it like they do now to Cheryl Miller's career was over. That's right. And she argued that that should have been professional sports for, for women. That should have been a WNBA for them to be able to go to after they, they finished playing because they were phenomenal. That's right. But when you look at a Cheryl Miller, not only did she revolutionize creating the WNBA in which Cynthia Cooper comes over from across seas and dominates the first few years of the WNBA. And, and to me is the Michael Jordan of the WNBA. Absolutely. So you, you look at what she did, what Cheryl Miller could have did, but Cynthia Cooper took it, took it on. But Cheryl Miller became a, a, a analyst to where she's interviewing NBA players and they respect her enough to give her the interview That's right. because they knew she could play ball. So when you think about the Doris Burks of the world, you think about the Carol Lawson's of the world, you think about all of these uh, Candace Parker, she's on TNT now sometimes. Cheryl Miller set the precedent, not of just being a great woman's basketball player to create the WNBA, 
but creating them into be um, in in sports casting, right. um, to be writers, to be um, broadcasters. So Cheryl Miller and that Women of Troy team influential when it comes to women in sports. Absolutely. As her being a broadcaster, you get now you get Carrie Champion, you get Jamel Hill, you get um I forgot the other black lady's name. Rebecca Lobo. Uh, yeah, yeah. Rebecca Lobo. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Anybody else in women's sports? Y'all y'all got anybody? Let's go Wilma Ru- Rudolph real quick. Wilma. Wilma Rudolph. Won a gold medal in two different Olympics, 1956 and 1960. She sure did. Um, and she also briefly dated Muhammad Ali. Mm. Cassius Clay. A lot of people don't know that. She she dated him a little while. Um, so, obviously, Wilma Rudolph did something that no other black woman had done. Um she went to the Olympics and once brought home some gold medals Facts. in uh, 1956 and then again in 1960. 1960. However, same thing with Jesse um, Owens. Thing. When Jesse Owens came back, white America, well, you won the Olympics. No big deal. She was actually banned from being able to run professionally in the United States because she was black. Mm-hmm. So once again, she went over. And just so people know. We're going to put this out here real quick. For the Olympics, the United States, in my opinion, sucks. I'm, going, I'm, going, and I'm not going to apologize for that statement. <laughs> Other countries finance and sponsor their Olympic team. So mm-hmm. Italy f- sponsors the athletes. Canada sponsors the athletes. The United States, you just wear the United States on the front of your jersey. Yeah. They don't, you get your own sponsors. Okay? Mm-hmm. You got to get your own sponsors. Uh, and, and for those that that don't believe that, um, Google Gary Russell Jr., who's a boxer, and he had an opportunity to, to fight in the Olympics a few years ago. And he'll tell you how difficult it was for him to get his parents over there with a oh, yeah, yeah, to absolutely. be able to fight. And you guys, we talked about him in, in the past, but um, the United States does not help with the financing for these professional athletes. It has to be done by themselves. Which is why, again, Tennessee State University is important because these athletes were able to go train at Tennessee State before they went to the Olympics in 1956 and 1960. Huge. Wilma Rudolph. Um, she also, she had polio as a kid. That's right. To the point where... Um, she had to learn to walk again. Yeah, until she was 12 years old, she had a brace on her leg. Um, and she also, after she won the Olympics, when she comes back to Tennessee... They want to hold a parade for her, but they would not allow African-Americans to be there. That's right. So she said she wasn't going to do the parade unless they integrate the parade in which the Tennessee mayor said, you know what? You're right. Well, that's what we're going to do. At, at the first integrated parade in yes, the United States. Absolutely. So absolutely. Monumental. Monumental. You got a female? Uh, the great Naomi Osaka. <laughs> Naomi. Uh, you know, she beat Serena and they said, oh, she was pregnant. So we waited nine months, and then she beat Serena. <laughs> but no, um, she she uh, much like you said earlier, Dad, about um, you know you have to factor in when you make a move. Is these brands gonna support you? That's right. She used a sponsorship ad that runs on ESPN to speak about Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So for me, it was. She factored in, could I lose this sponsor? Could I lose money that's right. by saying something about the police brutality that's going on? Absolutely. 
and, and just to speak to that, too, if you listen to Serena and you listen to Venus Williams, they will tell you as great as they have been mm-hmm. over the last 20 plus years, as great as they've been. The circuit is still as prejudiced today as it was 20 years ago, mm-hmm. which is unreal. So with everything that they're kind con- and you have white tennis players that will come out today and tell you they make more money mm-hmm. when Serena and Venus are on the circuit. Mm-hmm. But yet they do not get the same level of respect mm-hmm. as the white tennis players. That's phenomenal. So for Osaka to do that, knowing they're already under intense pressure, right. racial discrimination on the circuit. Now, we're not just talking about from commentators and uh, uh, spectators. We're talking about players. players yeah. We're talking about coaches. We're talking about prominent figures in in the industry that still does not give them the respect. Now, I do want to give kudos to Billie Jean King because over over decades of being in this industry of professional tennis, she has not only made a way for women, but she's made a way for black women, Mm -hmm. which is huge. So I don't want to leave her out. Absolutely. And. I heard the disrespect you just gave Serena. I'm, I'm gonna let that slide. Yeah, I didn't like how that uh, sounded either. But but, but, but we understand. What we, get we get we it. We get it. Watching her in Osaka is like passing the torch. We get it. We get it. But you know, you, you got to look at Venus and Serena. Um, number one, their father was a black figure and teaching them tennis. Um, and then you know, Serena again being pregnant and playing, she she brought that to the forefront of what black athletes or women athletes have to deal with. With, with also being pregnant. But it is fun watching Serena and Osaka yeah. play against each other because it's like a passing of the torch. Kind of like a mirror match for Serena, yeah. Um, yeah. so to speak. I, I, I hated uh, the disrespect that Serena been getting where they were comparing her to a monkey or ape or mm-hmm. something. And, you know, just overall saying that she had man-like features. Yeah. And, you know, th- to me, to overcome those things and be able to go out and play at that level, I don't know how she did it. Yeah. Right. I really don't. I don't know many people, you know, that wouldn't have fled. And, and we, she had a breakdown. Mm-hmm. She had a couple breakdowns. She said, I'll take this ball and stick it. <laughs> Obviously, that was years of frustrating of being tr- of frustration. But then she's the angry black a woman. a certain way. Yeah. When she, when she takes the racket and hit it, she's the angry black exactly. woman. Exactly. Yeah. But when Martina Hingis did it, it's okay. Yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Naomi had a quote that I think is perfect for what this podcast is and it's i don't expect anything drastic to happen with me not playing but if i can get a conversation started in the majority white sport i consider that a step in the right direction yeah she's young yeah you get that from a young person it makes you feel good right yeah when you look at osaka pardon me if i'm wrong but she's half japanese half haitian right Mm -hmm. so you're, you're, you're talking about two different as we go back and you talk about the roots that we talked about you're talking about two different cultures that she has to cultivate with um, with integrating and uh, in, in, in sports. The, the sad thing is for white America, she's different. They don't yeah. care about the rest of that. Yeah. She's, she's not white. She's right. non-white. That's um, all they care about. I'm going to go with the great Maya Moore. Uh, Maya Moore won four WNBA championships. She won back-to-back championships at UConn, won an undefeated season to where they, they took the win streak to 78 games. Uh, it went further than that after she left. Um, but she gave up all of that to help in criminal justice reform. That's right. And to which she actually got Jonathan Irons exonerated from a uh, wrongful conviction, and she married him. That's right. And she, even after doing that, she still says there's more work to be done. She could easily go back to the WNBA and be the best player there. But she said, my fight is outside of that. And when you look at the WNBA as a whole, they've been monumental in, in, in talking and speaking out about 
racial injustice. Um, they've been um, talking about discrimination. When you looked at what they they posted, the videos of or photos of their bubble versus the NBA bubble uh, fighting for equal pay. So the WNBA has been monumental altogether with fighting for change and creating change. So um, Maya Moore and what she the work she's doing, she she put basketball on the back burner. But the people that play with her are not putting it on the back burner because they're representing it in their everyday in their everyday life. They even have jerseys. They you know the NBA called theirs some edition, but the WNBA called their alternative jerseys uh, like the Freedom uh, Edition. So where they're, they're they're talking about racial injustice and all of these things within their uniform, and, amazing. And if for those that hadn't heard that story about Mal Moore, it's it's amazing to me still to this day that discrimination comes in all forms because the stories you probably did hear about was the people that Kim Kardashian helped mm -hmm. for the the reform, yeah, and the people that she Quite worked to get out of prison, which is great, yeah. and I, I I commend her for what she's done. But what was the difference between what she did and what Maya Moore did? Mm -hmm. What was the difference in the media attention that what Kim Kardashian did? I know she's a billionaire. Right. I get it. I know she's married to Kanye West. I get yeah. it. Mm -hmm. But the work is the same. Right. right. And yet nobody, a lot of people, unless you was watching ESPN, unless you were in the sports, you didn't hear about Maya Moore. You didn't see that on CNN. Well, you also, the money's different. When you look at Maya Moore, the best WNBA player, she's not making that much money. That's right. So the money's different. And for her to turn down the money and say, no, this exactly. is more important. Different. Very different. Just before you go, Dad, I just, um, I'm going to say Renee Montgomery, just because it ties in with what Bate just said, because she was also on that team. Uh, that when Maya Moore them went undefeated and won the championship. Yeah, the UConn team. Um, I say Renee Montgomery because she stopped last year. She didn't go to the bubble because she sent out the tweet and said, hey, I'm not playing because what's going on is more important. They didn't expect that tweet to go crazy like that. And the, the um, WNBA commissioner called her and said, look, the tweet was good, but we need more. Mm -hmm. And what the WNBA did with the bubble and they was the first ones to say, look, we're not playing when I think it was, was it James Blake that was killed? Mm -hmm. They was the first ones to say we was not playing. Mm -hmm. The NBA, baseball, everybody else followed what the WNBA That's did. Right. Uh, Renee Montgomery sat out and didn't get paid, but Kyrie stepped in and said, I'll help with the salaries of the players that's not going to play. I think it was him and a few more players, but it was mainly Kyrie. Mm -hmm. But Renee Montgomery not only helped with the election, she said, all right, it's it's March. How are we going to keep these people engaged until November? That's right. So she started throwing block parties for the younger kids to come to remind them, hey, look, what we're doing is great, but we still got to vote come November. And after November, we now have to vote in Atlanta again to get the right people. That's right. Yes. Now, you, you, that and that place is important. Like we we talked about on this part. Right. Atlanta is important. Uh, the vote right. is important. Yeah. That, that whole conversation is important. But when you get to the last line, which is voting. Mm hmm. Because obviously that's where you're gonna make the difference. Right. You can educate, you can re-educate, you can inform, you can make people aware. But the one thing you can't do for them is vote for them. Right. Yep. You got to do that yourself. And to do that, you have to understand what are your voting rights mm -hmm. and how how do what what is the voting process? Mm -hmm. Making sure that you're registered. Key. 
We're talking about Atlanta. We're talking about Georgia. You know, you just passed the new voting rights bill. Right. Because so, Georgia was the main state that was flipped. Yeah. Absolutely. So you got any more female? I got a lot, but I, I think right. we want we want to we, we want to keep it moving. Okay. I'm okay. sure because we could go on for days. Oh, yeah. Just so everybody right. know, the the black women's impact was huge. Mm-hmm. Only because it came later. It came later in the process. Mm-hmm. And it went right along with the women's movement. So as women in general started breaking barriers, the best way to do that is get all the support you can. So you bring black women with you and the black women showed up. They really did. I mean, Athea Gibson is one that I keep thinking about because of what she went through in the tennis circuit. Now, keep in mind. By herself. By herself. Yeah, because ain't no team in tennis. All (laughs) you is all on you. And there's no spectators that are rooting for you. So imagine being in a hostile environment and got to go out and not just perform, but win. And she did it on multiple occasions, Mm -hmm. which is huge. But keep in mind when we talk about sports and you think about why are black kids better at certain sports. Let's put this in real perspective. When you talk about economical development, this is huge. Let's put this in perspective. Basketball, I can play by myself. Mm-hmm. Even if I don't have a goal, I'll make one. Mm-hmm. You guys know how yeah, we yeah. did that many yeah. times, right? You, you make one and you play. Uh, tennis courts, you can go anywhere in the hood and find a tennis court. It might not be in the greatest of shape, right. Right. but you can but play. It's but it's there. Why? It just came along with the park territory. You go anywhere you want to, you're going to see some tennis courts. Mm-hmm. Probably never see anybody playing on Might be some grass growing up on it, but you'll see them. Mm-hmm. It's another sport that even if you don't have a racket, guess what? I can make you one. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you, you do what you need to do to be able to play these sports. Track and field. Just by nature, we're naturally strong and fast mm-hmm. because of where we derive from. We derive, we derive from Africa. Motherland. The motherland. The other thing is we're able to endure heat, unfortunately, which is what made us great slaves, is because we can retain water and we're able to work in extreme heat. Mm-hmm. That's the unfortunate part. The great part is we kill at the Summer Olympics. Facts. Right. We kill at the Summer Olympics. Why? Because we're built for that. Mm-hmm. So you look at some of these sports that are free in nature and in cost, we're going to excel at. Mm-hmm. Football, I need one person. That can throw the football. And I don't care who it is. Mom, dad, little guy across the street. You throw it, it, I'll catch it. Okay? I throw it, you catch it. It's a sport that you can play that don't cost you anything. Mm -hmm. We're talking about free sports. Now, you start talking about tennis at a high level. Mom's got to go out and buy you a tennis racket. Mm -hmm. She got to buy you tennis shoes. See, we wear sneakers. Okay? (laughs) People may call them tennis shoes, but we wear sneakers. Now, you want to play tennis, I got to get you tennis shoes. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. That's more money. All right. You want to swim? First, I got to find out where I can get a membership for you to be able to swim. That costs money. Yeah. See, we play free sports. Soccer. You don't need a goal. You kick it across the line. You score. Right. Okay. Free, 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 free. See, so economic development is what lead us to the sports that we excel at. That's huge. You want to break the barrier? Spend some money. Mm-hmm. Put your kids into some 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 programs where they can become better swimmers mm-hmm. and they can compete at a higher level. Put them in band. Buy them an instrument. I remember when I was in school, we didn't have to buy an instrument. You leased it. Yeah. You know, you leased it. So you get them an instrument. They don't necessarily have to play these sports that we've been Condition to play because of economical reasons. Mm-hmm. Have them experiment. Play something else. Keeps playing soccer. You play soccer. Um, I play soccer. It's a sport that you can play. Again, it doesn't cost a whole lot. Right. It may have to play in a different environment. You might have to go to the Y. You might have to play amongst all white kids. But if that's what your child wants to do, don't hold them back because of his color. 
And Keith yeah. is the is the only black on this team. He's been the only black on this team for three years. That's now. right. But he's also, and I'm not just saying that because he's my son, but he's also the best player on the team. Absolutely. We're going to be right back after this commercial break. I told you, we're not going to rush this episode. We're going to keep on going. And we are back. Uh, we're going to jump right back in. Um, so we just covered the women in sports, and we were being modest because there's so much more to cover. So much. Uh, so much. But we're going to go into players that are important, not just in their sport, but outside of their sport. Um, if you watch the news lately, of course, you've seen my guy, Russell Westbrook, opening up his own middle middle. Um, Opened up his own middle high school in Los Angeles. Is he your guy because he plays for Yeah, the- he is now. He is my guy now. Did, did he do that by, or is that conjunction with his wife? I can't remember. I, I think it is conjunction with his wife because I believe she does a lot. Um, and it's called Why Not Academy. Um, and it's so that kids that impoverished neighborhoods um, can attend a school with resources and funding. And he's also uh, producing a documentary on Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So we're we seeing great things from our brothers. Um, again, LeBron James Promise School. We know what that is. An elementary school aimed at rich children. By next year, it would be ages. Um, it'd be grades one through eight by next year. Okay. Um, he also has uh, free apartments that they can rent for the kids that are going to the school and their parents. So um, we're seeing schools being built. Uh, not only that, but also uh, if the kids don't have a way to school, they get a bike. Um, right. Whoever whoever graduates, they get a free ride to Akron University or Ohio University. Mm-hmm. Um, if the parents don't have a job, they help the parents find a job. Absolutely. Um, I'll, I want to throw this in there. Uh, what they did important outside of the sport. Um, Mike Tyson and Metal World Peace. Mm-hmm. What they done for mental health, mm-hmm. bringing that to the forefront. Um right. Open it up about it because we've seen Kyrie talk about it now. A lot, it. a lot of players wouldn't be comfortable talking about mental health issues if it wasn't for Mike Tyson and, and, and Metal right. World Peace. Because when, when you talk about mental health, you also got to talk about mental illness. Mm-hmm. And and anytime you have any type of debilitating uh, issue, whether it's a disease or a, addictions, whatever it may be, Black Americans are usually less likely to talk about it because it's viewed as some type of weakness or a form to bring that person down. Mm-hmm. So you don't hear about it that often. So it, it, I thought it was really great to hear some of these professional athletes come out and talk about it. I kind of wish some of them would have talked about it like Kyrie Irving's doing it right now mm-hmm. while you're playing. Yeah, I hate that it always happens after they're finished playing mm-hmm. because it's almost like they didn't want to say anything because it was going to jeopardize that paper. Yeah, because Ron Artest, he was seeing the therapist in Indiana. Absolutely. But it wasn't until after he won a championship with the Lakers but that he said do, I was going to... Do y'all think the they don't talk about it because that may not get you signed? I don't remember who the player was, but remember the player that... Couldn't get on planes. He didn't yeah. want to get on yeah, planes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I forgot his name, but yeah, yeah. yeah he couldn't. He couldn't Even fly. when he got drafted, yeah, he, he couldn't fly. Room. Yeah. So when we look at Delonte West and all those players, a lot of players stay quiet about it because it hurts yeah. the risk of you getting signed. Delonte or, West is the is the most important one that I I, don't, I want to talk about for okay. a second is because I think his is the most crucial because it was widely known mm-hmm. ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to Cleveland. LeBron James, Delonte West in Cleveland. Playing in the playoffs, mm-hmm. and LeBron James finds out during, but right before game, that Delonte West is having a relationship with his mom. Mm-hmm. And for those that don't know this story, Google it. Mm-hmm. Okay, finds out before the game that this guy's having a relationship with his mom, mm-hmm. 
and administration knew about it, but they wanted to keep it a secret until the game to the, to the playoffs was over mm-hmm. because they wanted the best version of LeBron James. Right. Well, of course, anytime you find that out, first thing somebody want to do is go and tell. Mm-hmm. So somebody went and told LeBron James and he played horrible after that. Not because his mom was having a relationship with a with the player, but it was a player who was known to have mental <laughs> illness. So for the administration to know that, but only reveal to LeBron James a day of the game yeah. that this is happening is irresponsible. Mm-hmm. It is irresponsible. And I felt like that for LeBron James, they sabotaged him. Mm-hmm. And all at the cost of Delonte's West mental health mm-hmm. because as you see in the media he's went downhill drastically yeah. since then shout out to mark cuban right. for, yeah, for, for helping him yeah. and, uh, doc rivers also yeah. attempted to do the same and uh you know so for for in professional sports when it comes to that paper so everybody's aware they don't care mm-hmm. money is the most important thing LeBron James understand that now, mm-hmm. which is why he took his talents to Miami for a little while. Mm-hmm. And then he went back only because not because of the organization, because that was his hometown. Right. And nobody wants to win in their hometown like LeBron James mm-hmm. wanted to. So that's why he went back. He still despises the organization. Mm-hmm. And Delonte West was, in my opinion, was uh, he, he just fell to the to the to the to on the sword mm-hmm. for what was going on in that organization in that organization at the time, right. and I feel sorry for him because mental illness is something that's huge in black communities that we don't know. We normally push him off as that person's crazy, right? right. You know, nobody's going to the doctor for being crazy. Mm-hmm. They're just being pushed to the side, and people just oh he's crazy, something wrong with him, mm-hmm. and we look to the side, we look away from it. Yeah, and I believe Derrick Rose struggled with it too, especially when he was in New York when he took time away from the team. Um, but I think that led to Kyrie speaking out about it more because I think he's seen it from players that he's played with or players in the league and and really brought it to the forefront. But Mike Tyson, we knew something was wrong with Mike Tyson. Absolutely. But, you know, he admitted that it scared him sometimes. That's why his boxing career really went down because he said with the way that he thought, he literally was going to kill somebody in the right. ring. So he he talked about that in, in, in this fight. And then, of course, Metal World Peace talked about it. But I felt that was important. Um, Joe Lewis and Sugar Ray Robinson were key because I was reading Jackie Robinson's book. And, you know, Jackie Robinson talked about the reason why he was honorably discharged is because he refused to give up his seat on a bus when he was in right. service. Um because he was talking to uh, another individual that he knew's wife who looked white. And she was actually mixed, but she looked white. And they told him to get up and move, and he refused to do so. But Joe Lewis and Sugar Ray Robinson also refused to do so. And they actually got um, anybody traveling on a bus or um, any transportation that was military it was it, it, it could be integrated from there on. You couldn't be discriminated against. Also, when Jackie Robinson first got drafted, they they spent like six or seven months without being able to go into training. That's right. And so Joe Lewis made a phone call and said, because and he, he was actually transferred to that base, he made a phone call and got things shaken immediately. Also, Joe Lewis and Sugar Ray Robinson will go around and do exhibitions for the That's military. Right. But when they went to the South, Black troops weren't allowed to be there. So they said the only re- the only way they'll fight in the South is if black troops was allowed to come watch. 
So they began to change things from uh, from on the outside in. Um, before Ali refusing to go to war, um, Sugar Ray Robinson did the same thing. Now he made the excuse that he fell down some steps and, and hurt himself. That's so right. he got honorably discharged. But um, Ali was wasn't the first person to do that. Um, Jim Brown, before Kaepernick, Jim Brown was fighting um, racial injustice. He brought black athletes together um, to form um, a black entrepreneurialism. And he remained active in the African community by helping build life skills and donating his uh, time towards anti-gang campaigns. But with the black entrepreneurialism, he brought athletes together to show them how to spend their money, how to invest their money to begin to grow businesses outside of the league. So uh, Jim Brown was a revolutionary. Gail Sayers, I think he went to Kansas University. Right. He performed a sit-in to where he was arrested. Um so we see a lot of monumental things happening. Um, Serge Ibaka, he comes from the Republic of Congo. Mm. You know, he he's done things. He has a, um, a Africa versus the world game to where NBA players come play against um, them right. in, in Africa, um, in which he donates a lot of money going back and towards Africa. Brandon Marshall, um, after he took a knee, he began to work with the police department in Denver to help uh, black and police communication and uh Richard Sherman, he has his own foundation to where he helps provide money for uh, school clothes and school supplies. So one of the things that you see is consistent across the board with all these successful uh, black athletes and, and even going back to the first black athletes, they all gave back to the community yeah. that helped them. Every last one of them. We can go all the way back to 1889. Mm -hmm. Every last one of them went back and said, I want to help some other black people be able to achieve what I, yeah. I was able to achieve. And that's that's the greatness. The other thing is, is that for every last one of them, they had somebody who saw something in them mm -hmm. and gave them an opportunity, mm -hmm. which is huge because really and truly, you can have all the talent in the world. If you don't get the opportunity, it doesn't mean anything. One of the reasons I don't like the Lakers to this day is they had a player on the bench named Adrian Branch, played at Maryland was an awesome basketball oh. player at Maryland. Oh. And he sat on the bench for the Los Angeles Lakers his entire career. Mm. And he never had an opportunity to play. Unfortunately, there's a lot of players that are really good that, that, that could shine if they had an opportunity. And a lot of times they don't get an opportunity because of the people that were in front of him. In Adrian Branch's case, he had a slew of Hall of Famers that played in front of him. Yeah. So he never saw the, he never saw the court. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I like the fact when people come back and give other people opportunities right. to, to achieve what they achieved or even be even greater. Right. Because when we see these players, you know, because LeBron gets a lot of backlash. But my thing has always been this. LeBron James and these athletes are doing things. That's technically not their job. That's right. It's that's technically right. Ohio's job to create a school like that. That's right. It's Los Angeles' job to create a school that Westbrook has. It's not their job to do that's so. Right. But they understand that you're not going to do it, so I'll do it. Um, we seen Carmelo Anthony go to Rikers Island to speak to juveniles. That's right. Y'all know some police officers wouldn't even go into Rikers Island. Right. <laughs> you know what Absolutely. I mean? Uh, we seen the Warriors go to San Quentin and play. I know some people who would never go to San Quentin. To do anything. Uh, no matter if you give me bodyguards or whatever the case may be. Uh, just to add in to Renee Montgomery was the the owner came uh, of the, um, is it Atlanta Sky? Atlanta Sky? Atlanta Dream. Atlanta Dream came out and said, 
why is the WNBA back in Black Lives Matter? And they removed her. So what Renee did was say, you know what? I'm not I'm I'm not gonna play anymore. I'm gonna retire and become she's the co-owner of the WNBA team now. Yeah. And right. she's hiring people that look like her. Right. Um, and I and I know we left Cap out, but uh I just wanted to add with Cap to to know because everybody thought Cap's purpose was to play football, to make millions of dollars playing football, but Cap realized that his purpose was I might not get the credit for it, mm -hmm. but I'll start it. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Um Do you guys think he was blackball? Yes. Yes, of course. Um, Greg Popovich and Nick Saban, them standing up for black athletes was huge because they understand most of my money comes from black athletes. Absolutely. <laughs> so most of my success comes from black athletes. So by them speaking up about racial injustice is huge, especially in Alabama right. with Nick Saban, because we know most of their fans used to wave Confederate flags in the right. stands. So we know that. Um Penny Hardaway. Penny Hardaway, after he goes back and coach a middle school team, before he goes to Memphis and coach, he coaches his middle school team because he wants to help people in his community. Mike Miller is coaching his old high school team. That's so right. we're seeing these NBA and players and NFL players. That, he was on that coaching staff with Penny Hardaway. On that coaching staff. So it, that inspired him to go back and do the same thing. So we see just within, on, out, on, off the field, off the court, we see athletes doing incredible things that they necessarily don't have to do. Oh, absolutely. Um, but for the people who say, you know, why should they speak for you? Because they're on, they have a platform. They have a platform. And they come from the communities that we're talking about. When you look at the success of these athletes, yeah, you could say, LeBron James, you live in Los Angeles right. with this billion dollar. You forget where LeBron James come from? That's right. You forget where hood he from? That's what y'all don't understand. He's not giving to Los Angeles. He's giving back to Ohio. Yeah, that's right. You have to understand these things to understand what he's talking about. And because it's not his job, but he's making it his that's responsibility. Right. Influence and change come from numbers. That's what that's yeah. that's the truth. If you think about the people who vote, do they really understand everything that each candidate stands on? You think right. they really understand all that? It's all about who gets the most votes, whether you understand the platform or not. So it comes in numbers. So influence and change comes by a majority of the numbers. So if you have a platform to reach a larger number of people, you can have a great influence. And that's mm -hmm. what people like LeBron James is doing. Anybody else y'all have outside of sport? What do y'all got? I, 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 I know you wait. Go I, I got to go John Thompson. Big we, J. We, we got to talk about the big JT. Now, you guys might might remember the story, but Jerome, why are you a Georgetown fan? Let's get to it. <laughs> my dad, I, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. You can tell by my social security number. Well, that's why uh, when you, early when we were talking about Allen Iverson and you you said he went to Georgetown, and I was like, but he's from VA. But I forgot you're not oh, from Virginia. No, so. I'm not from Virginia. <laughs> hey, I, I, I love Virginia, but I'm from D.C. And my dad had told me I started watching so for you know and, and DC Channel 5 is the DC channel TV channel and Georgetown used to play on Channel 5 it was the only channel we could really get good reception on that I could see and I would watch Georgetown play on TV and my dad told me one time he was like you know I, I grew up in the same neighborhood with John Thompson and immediately because like my dad could have told me yellow is my favorite color. Yellow would have been my favorite color. Whatever my dad would have said, I would say, I'm with you, dad. That's me. I like, yeah. I like yellow. 
So I started watching Georgetown with this even greater enthusiasm because my dad grew up in the same neighborhood as John Thompson. Mm -hmm. And so as time went on and I got older and I learned more about sports, I'm still watching Georgetown. And they get this guy who I refer to as the monkey, the monkey man. man. Now, no disrespect to Patrick Ewing. I love him to death. That's my guy. That's just what I called him. Mm -hmm. The monkey man. Patrick Ewing, 1983, loses to UNC. Michael Jordan. Yes. James Worthy. Sam Perkins. Let's, I'm going to put Sam out there because everybody overpassed. Nobody ever talk about Sam Perkins. But he was Mike Jordan back then. He wasn't Sam Michael Perkins, Jordan. And they they beat Georgetown. Come back 1984, the monkey man goes to work. Yeah. And Georgetown wins the championship. John Thompson coached 27 seasons at Georgetown. But here's where he made his biggest impact. It's a few, few points. I'm going to go uh, number one first. Proposition 42. What Proposition 42 was is that in order to qualify for a scholarship, in order to be eligible for a scholarship, you had to pass a standardized test. Mm -hmm. And we know immediately when we talk about standardized tests, if you watch this podcast, yes. it ain't going to work in the favor of the black man. Okay? Exactly. So John Thompson took a stand and said, we can't have it. Mm -hmm. He didn't say, I'm not going to have it. We we cannot have it. Mm -hmm. And he had other coaches stand up with him. And guess what? We ain't have it. Mm -hmm. Huge. That made a huge difference in some athletes that had an opportunity to get a scholarship and play at the collegiate level and go on one to get a degree. Let's 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 make it clear. Back then, a lot of kids were staying, even even when when Vince Carter came out, what he missed, he was almost late for a playoff game. Cause why? He went to his graduation when he played for the Toronto Raptors. So it was huge. But let's go personal note with John Thompson for a second. <clears throat> now, mind you, he mentored people like Allen Iverson, mm -hmm. Alonzo Mourning, mm -hmm. Patrick Ewing, mm -hmm. Dikembe Mutombo. Mm -hmm. Okay? These are people that ended up going to the NBA and doing great things. But let's talk about some things that he did behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know about. Alonzo Mourning, young, young kid. And for people that know, Alonzo Mourning was a high school kid who got an opportunity to almost go to the Olympics mm -hmm. as a high school kid. Him and John Turner. People may have forgotten about John Turner, too. And John Thompson heard that Alonzo Mourning had been spending time with a guy named Rayful Edmonds. Mm -hmm. For people that live in D.C., you know who I'm talking Facts. about. Facts. Rayful Edmonds probably killed about 40 people over, was responsible for murdering over 40 people in Washington, D.C., a well-known drug lord in Washington, D.C. And uh, John Thompson sent a message to him and said, hey, meet me at the gymnasium. And Rayful Edmonds showed up. And John Thompson said, okay, I need you to stay away from Alonzo Mourning in any players on this Georgetown Warrior team. Now, there's rumors about how he went about it. John Thompson, 6'10", minister, okay? <laughs> there's rumors about he pointed in his face. You, yeah, it, but With the towel John, over the shoulder. Right, <laughs> but John Thompson said that's not what he did. Right. He said Rayful was very respectful mm -hmm. because he respected what he was trying to do. Now, I love that aspect because even in small communities like Bedford, if you're trying to do something 
good mm -hmm. and you have people that are street personalities mm -hmm. if you go to them and said hey i need y'all to cool it for a little while i got kids down here mm -hmm. they will listen i know that from experience when we started hoops kid we had street personalities that were around and i went to them and said hey we're gonna have kids down here from 6 to 7 30 can y'all be cool you know no no cursing no smoking weed no drinking can y'all do that absolutely mm -hmm. they wanted to see these this young generation have better Rafe Wedmans wanted to see Alonzo Mourning and John Turner have an opportunity, and he left them alone. To this day, there, there's no more talk about him having any affiliations whatsoever with Georgetown players. John Thompson, the big guy. <laughs> Absolutely. That's wonderful. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back. Uh, we're going to jump right in and finish this episode. Um, there's some important games and events I want to talk about as well. Um, and then we'll leave the floor open for anything you guys want to say to wrap this up. Um, 1948, the Harlem Globetrotters versus the Minneapolis Lakers. Um, the game took place two years before professional basketball was desegregated. Uh, the Globetrotters ended up winning 61 to 59 by two points at the buzzard. Um, and it challenged racial stereotypes and about the abilities of black athletes. So, again, the Harlem Globetrotters really revolutionized basketball, especially for the African-Americans and making it popular. But by them beating the Minneapolis Lakers in 1948, allowed a lot of uh, black players to be uh, integrated um, in the NBA or ABA. Uh, 1965, St. Augustine versus Jesuit. If you ever seen the movie <laughs> Passing <laughs> Glory. Um See, Jesuit didn't play St. Augustine because uh, Jesuit was an all-white team and uh, St. Augustine was an all-black team. Even though they were both undefeated at the top of the city, they didn't play each other. Um, but the, the two teams, the, um, the coaches and the program came together one day and said, hey, look, we should play each other. And they didn't really want to do it with people there because they said, you know, it, it can cause some controversy. So they called it the secret game. And... Um, they ended up meeting up. They locked. I think a few parents were allowed in. Um, the teams were allowed in, and they locked the door and they played. They didn't even keep the score or really keep the clock going. Um, but at the end, you know, uh, St. Augustine ended up winning about twenty-two points, is what the um, the myth or the the theory is. That's right. Um, but it also it it changed basketball forever because this is a week after Malcolm X is assassinated. So allowing this to happen, I believe the very next year they actually played each other for real, for real. Right. Um, but that, that that was big with St. Augustine and Jesuit, two high school teams. Texas Western versus Kentucky, if you ever watched the movie Glory, um, where Coach Haskins uh, starts all five black players in the national championship game against Pat Riley in Kentucky. Uh, but don't let the movie fool you. Um, the players from Texas Western came out and said, not only was Kentucky's coach prejudiced, but their own coach was prejudiced. He just wanted to win. So he knew the best way to win was to start his all black players. Right. So um, that, that changed sports forever because a lot of other teams started to go out and recruit black players, especially in the South. Um, there were many black players. You may have one in the starting lineup. That was about it. But starting all five was um, a barrier breaker, um, especially in the South. That's right. Um, in 1970, there was a game between Alabama and USC. Um, now, Alabama was the powerhouse back then, but USC had a running back by the name of Sam Bam Cuttingham. And Sam Bam Cuttingham 
ended up going crazy that game to where they won 42-21. And after the game, the racist Alabama fans was telling Alabama's coach, we need one of them. We need, one <laughs> we need a black player, a black running back. We need one of them. And the very next year, they, they went got and got Wilbur, Wilbur Jackson. That's right. So uh, that game with Sam Bam Cuttingham goes crazy. Um, changed uh, football forever because a lot of even racist schools wanted a black running back or a black player right. that could help win a national championship. Um, there was a woman by the name of, uh, I think it's Erosana Rose Robinson. But she was a track and field and activist who refused to stand up for the national anthem back in the 1950s. Uh, this is before Colin Kaepernick. So um, those are some big events and some big uh, things that happened. Y'all have any? I, I want to bring up Bob Rollin real quick. Because I, I know when we talk about first black tennis players, you often hear about Athea Gibson and Arthur Ashe. Mm -hmm. And you hear about Arthur Ashe because uh, he, he won. He was the first black to win uh, a, a major title mm -hmm. on, on the tennis circuit. And also he's from Virginia. So you hear about him a lot in, this, in, in being in Virginia. But he wasn't the first to play professional tennis. Uh, wasn't the first black American to play professional tennis. It was a guy named Bob Rollin who was the first, not just professional, but he was also the first one to play collegiate mm -hmm. um, tennis. Um, and it's huge because again, we talk about giving back he went back and became a coach and coached the likes of Venus and Serena Williams. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's important that we keep mentioning how you keep giving back. You keep going back to the community. Um, people often say, uh, don't forget where you come from. Yeah. I don't mean you got to still live there. That just means that you have to remember that there are people that are still in that environment that you can help. And if mm -hmm. you can, you need to do so. And we continuously talk about how these athletes, successful black athletes, all went back and, and, and helped other unfortunate black athletes. Absolutely. Anything uh, in closing? Mike Vick. Um, though he wasn't the first black player at Virginia Tech, but he kind of made it cool to go to Virginia Tech as a, as a black football player. Yeah. Um, and not only, you know, far as giving back, but, you know, he mentors Tyrod Taylor, he mentors uh, Lamar Jackson. So a lot of the black athletes that you see now playing quarterback that, you know, when the draft comes, they say, oh, he, maybe he's a wide receiver. Michael Vick is helping them say, hey, look, tell them you're a quarterback. Don't yeah. move to wide That's receiver. Right. Didn't Michael Vick just run a 4740? He, he ran, in college, he ran a 4 2. Right. He ran a four a four seven three, but he said in the middle of him running the forty yards, his left hamstring gave out on him. Wow, <laughs> wow! But as we, we look throughout sports, of course, there are a lot of influential people that we didn't get into. Um, if you look at Dr. J, what he was able to do in the ABA and the NBA from bringing that street ball uh, flair to the game that we love so much. No, nah, he just uh, hit it on LeBron. Get Dr. J. Out. Now, what, well, Dr. J was doing moves back then that they. Still trying to do now. Without Dr. J, you probably have no Michael Jordan yeah. to the level that we saw him with palming the basketball and, and yeah. moving it around, even Magic Johnson. So now, with that said, one I used to be a Julius Irvin fan. I was a huge mm -hmm. Julius Irvin fan. 
And then I saw Magic Johnson and I came with that afro. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. But yeah, I agree with you 100%. Julius Irvin, definitely with the ABA, the things when switching leagues for people that don't understand, you're going into an environment where people have never seen you before. Just because you play professional basketball don't mean everybody was seeing you play. Yeah. The ABA and NBA was two different entities. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people hadn't seen them play. So when they started integrating and became one, now you're seeing this guy you've never seen before, and he looked totally different than some of the black players that you were seeing in the NBA at yeah, the time. Right. Um, you got this guy with this huge afro and this and this and this headband, and he's maneuvering this basketball around in ways that nobody has seen before. Was phenomenal. Absolutely. Um, I know it, it, it. His image is tarnished now, but. You know, when you look at O.J. Simpson and what he did with the media um, when it creating endorsements, um, that changed the, the thing for black athletes forever as well. Um, yeah, I think it's a shame that you don't you will never hear NFL commentator or analyst mention O.J. Simpson. No. Nah. Um, and that's unfortunate because the one crime that everybody holds him accountable for, he got found out guilty. Yeah. So, you know, I know his his stuff is. It's tarnished a little bit. Um, Curtis Flood, who may never make it into the Hall of Fame because of uh, speaking out about free agency, um, actually taking it to court to where uh, he was traded and decided not to show up because he felt like it was too much power on the owners to say where they should go. He he had played for this team for 10 years, and then they decided to trade him. Um, He actually lost that fight, but two other players actually took theirs to court a couple of years later and won the fight to create what we call free agency now in MLB. Oscar Robinson did the same thing in the NBA. Um, But we see revolutionary things happen throughout sports that not only affect sports, but they affect our everyday lives, especially African-Americans, because um, whether you talk about Ali and uh, Kareem and their civil rights fight, um, whether you talk about uh, Colin Kaepernick, whether you talk about um, Allen Iverson, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, whatever you want to talk about, um, these athletes makes America great. I know, and I know a lot of people don't like to hear this, but if you go to China, most of those kids have no idea who Kamala Harris is. But if you ask them who LeBron James is, I guarantee you they know who he is. Um, you even go back to when uh, Jesse Jesse Owens went to uh, the Olympics. They were screaming, "We want, we want Jesse!" Yeah, you know the crowd was screaming, "We want Jesse!" Yeah. In in Germany. So I mean, obviously, uh, sports is very influential across the world. Um, but I also want to mention this too: is that when you watch sports and you're watching these athletes, we can't forget the people who are giving you the stories, the the analysts, the commentators. And I want to mention Irv Cross. Uh, Irv Cross was a former NFL player who was, in my opinion, you're going to it can be it's probably disputed by some people. But he was the first black analyst commentator that you saw on TV. Mm-hmm. There were some that you heard on the radio, but he was the first one you saw on TV. So not Brian Gumble you know, <laughs> for the for people that make it think it was Brian or or Greg, his brother, Greg. It was Irv Cross, um, the very first black full time TV sports analyst which is huge, very huge. Absolutely. So when you talk about the Mike Wilborns, uh, the Stuart Steve, Scott, Stephen A. Smith, uh, Hill, what's Hill's first name? Jamil. Jamil Hill. That's right. Um, all of these are speaking out about racial yeah. injustice. Um, um, 
They speak out about the things that are going on in the world. And I know a lot of people don't like when Stephen A. Smith and Max talk about it on ESPN. But as you go back in history, this is something we've been doing from the get-go. You know, a lot of those writers that wrote for the Negro Leagues were civil rights writers as well. And they, they just confirmed over into sports. So what they're doing is influential for the African-American community because they're using their platform. The That's same right. thing we're doing here. And we're using fact, our platform. The fact that Stephen A. Smith still continues to do it is is surprising to me. And I applaud the brother for doing it because if you watch ESPN today, it doesn't look the same that it looked five years ago. No. And a lot of those people aren't there anymore because they wanted to get away from political platforms and they wanted to stick with, stick with strictly sports. Guess what? It ain't happening. Yeah. You know why? Because it's what's happening. Right. And it, it is a current event. It's continuing to happen. And it plagues sports just like it does any other area of your, your everyday life. Right. And so, they have to use this platform. If you want to fire Stephen A. Smith, fire him. There'll be another one that comes along. Yeah. There will be another one that comes I mean, along. You fired Jamel Hill and, you That's know, right. for her speaking out about, you know, the president and what he what he was invoking and all of that. And ESPN, well... She said it, they decided to part ways, but we know what that we was. Because yeah. like. people like Brett Favre can tell, can tell people to shut up and just play ball. Brian Erlach. But, That's you right. know, they're not going to step up and tell Aaron Rodgers to do the same thing right. for what just happened. You That's know, right. um, But what our players, African-American players, are not just going to shut up and dribble. That time is long That's gone. Right. The time is long gone. They're not going to stay right. quiet. You're not going to shut them up and tell them to make their money. As LeBron said, thank you. Because Facts. what that means is you hear them. Yeah. Absolutely. So this platform is working. So uh, we applaud our athletes for being influential outside of the sport for people who think they just make millions of dollars by playing a sport. Understand that they didn't come up with the concept. We went back to a chronology of history of making $10,000 by being a horse jockey. This is something that has happened since the beginning of time in America. And black people found out a way to make money by using their gifts. That's so um, you can hate it. You can hate it or love it. But they're not going to they're going to continue to speak out for us because they represent our communities as well. Um, thank everybody for tuning in. We love y'all. See y'all next week.